0: Where is the highest percentage of your immune system? It's in your gut. 70% of the immune system lives in the gut. 38 trillion cells are right there. We have study after study that shows us this to be true, that when you damage the gut, you damage the immune system.
1: Well, hello there. And welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download. Wherever it is in the world that you are, we appreciate the fact that you are here. The gut. How much of your immune function is dictated by it? You just heard Dr. Will Bolsowitz say 70%. So, it stands to reason that if your gut isn't healthy, odds are, you're not either. So then, how do you get to have a healthy gut? And what should you be doing to make this happen? All good questions, and Dr. B will be here with some good answers. So, let's get pumped up to get dirty about this. We will be taking a deep dive into your tummy and beyond. And we're going to touch on how COVID-19 is affecting the GI tract. We now know that some of the symptoms for the virus, they're they're not pretty at all. They take direct aim at the gut. So, while there is no immunity from COVID-19, but can a healthier gut help mitigate the severity of the symptoms? We're going to find out about that as well. And In another segment, no doubt you've heard about the meat shortage in the country. But if there's less meat, won't that also mean less of everything else? I wanted to check in specifically about how our supply of fruits and vegetables is doing. So, I will be welcoming Dale Moore from the American Farm Bureau to the show today. We're going to be going down on the farm, checking the pulse of the growers, and seeing what is happening. want to make sure that we're not going to be having a kale shortage anytime soon. Will there be one? We're going to find out together. But we start with the gut and gastroenterologist, Dr. Will Bolsowitz. We're going to see how gut bacteria affects your risk of COVID-19. Rolling right along here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physician's Committee with the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Really excited about our next guest. You know, this is such an important topic given everything that's going on in the world right now and the fact that so many of you are interested in gut health. I'm pumped about this beyond belief. He is the author of the new book, Fiber Fuel, the plant-based gut health program for losing weight, restoring health, and optimizing your microbiome. You can call him Dr. B. I will call him Dr. Will Bulsiewicz. Welcome to the show, Dr.
0: B. Chuck, it is such a pleasure to be on the show with you in the exam room, my friends, even though we will not be doing any examinations today. I guess we'll be examining the science behind getting fiber-fueled and healing your gut.
1: We're definitely going to be doing a deep dive, doing some good examination and some science here. Uh, you are down in South Carolina right now. I'm up here in the Washington, D.C. area. Before we really get going on things, with the pandemic and everything, how are things going in your area?
0: Well, um, you know, we are not one of the hot spots. I mean, this is not New York or, or New Orleans. Um, we, we have cases. It's been affecting people. I mean, I'll be honest with you. my My own mother-in-law had the virus. Wow. How's she doing? And she's getting better every day. Um, But, you know, the minute that someone in your own family gets sick, you go, whoa, okay, like this is legit. And, you know, you kind of scramble to get the right pieces in place for the entire family to make sure that everyone is staying safe. So, you know, let me just tell you, like, I, I don't know that this is an issue for the listeners of the Physicians Committee, but I hear so many people in denial about the seriousness, the gravity of what we're dealing with here. This virus has, you know, completely paralyzed my medical practice, has really upended my book launch on may twelfth. But despite that, as a, a person who believes in public health and cares about human life, you know, I, I completely agree with the things that we are doing, and that includes across the entire country, including right here in my community. You know, we don't have we don't have thousands and thousands of cases in my community here, but we have enough cases where if we let it go and we did not take these steps it would get out of control really quickly.
1: Let's talk about some things that people can do on a smaller scale, and I'm talking about just with themselves, what we can do in terms of boosting our own immunity right now, trying to keep ourselves as healthy as possible while still adhering to those restrictions that are in place right now. And for that, I know that you are the expert when it comes to gut health, my friend, and so much of our immune system is controlled by our gut. That's why I'm pumped about your book that comes out, Fiber Fueled, on May 12th. We're going to put a link to pre-order that in the episode note below. You guys can go ahead and click on that right now. But I mean, really, how big of a role does the gut play in terms of our overall health and immunity?
0: Well, let's make this incredibly simple. Let me walk you down the path, okay? Where is the highest highest percentage of your immune system? It's in your gut. 70% of the immune system lives in the gut. And if you were to zoom in, pretend that you're going in and you're looking under a microscope at a cellular level at what's happening in there, There's 70% of the immune system. And then there's a single layer of cells, incredibly thin, one layer. And on the other side of that single layer of cells is the highest concentration of your microbiome in the entire body, the gut microbiome. 38 trillion cells are right there. And they're in such close proximity. It's not just physical proximity, there's constant communication. They're constantly talking to each other, and you cannot separate the two. Chuck, we have study after study that shows us this to be true, that when you damage the gut, you damage the immune system. It is, no, it is no coincidence that if you look at people with allergic issues or you look at people with autoimmune issues, you're going to find that there's damage to the gut. It's in every single study. When they ask this question, that's what they find. It's consistent. The opposite is also true. When you heal the gut, when you optimize the gut, you optimize the immune system. And so this is not about supplements. I mean, I appreciate there's a place for supplements. Don't get me wrong. But you can't take a C-minus immune system and turn it into an A-plus with a supplement. You want to optimize your immune system? Work on your gut health. When you work on your gut health, you will optimize your immune system. And I'm happy to talk to you more about how you go about doing that. But the bottom line is it's in the book. Yeah. The book book is the playbook.
1: For sure. You know, and and I want to ask you about that. I'll just tell you from my experience, you know, when I was still 420 pounds, like I was forever sick. And I've said on the show previously, like the joke was, you know, you go into the physician's office and you guys have those forms where you can check off like every condition known to man right there. What does he have today? Boom, there it is. My goal in life at that point, jokingly, was to make sure that every one of those conditions was checked off because I was in the office so frequently. But then when I lost the weight, and then later when I turned to a plant-based diet, I wasn't in the doctor's office hardly ever. And I think that a lot of that was driven by thinking about it, my diet, and then going deeper, my gut health.
0: Yeah. Well, and and so that's a fascinating thing because I'm saying gut health is immune health and the number one driver of your gut health is your diet. Show me your diet and I'll show you what your gut looks like. Show me your gut and I can tell you what you've been eating, right? They are completely intertwined. And when you eat a healthy diet, you don't just improve your gut. You don't just improve digestion. You improve all the other things that the microbiome is connected to. It's connected to your immune system. It's connected to your metabolism, like your weight, that's what you're alluding to, Chuck. It affects it affects insulin sensitivity, which is what Robbie and Cyrus talk about on mastering diabetes. It affects our mood, our ability to focus. It affects it affects our brain health. It affects our our hormone balance. And perhaps the most interesting one, which is kind of hard to like comprehend and fathom, it actually regulates our genetics. Wow. Wow. I mean that's incredibly powerful if you think about that.
1: Yeah, hold on. Uh, I want to come back to that. That is insane what you just said. I mean that's a that's a huge that's a huge nugget you just dropped on us. But I think that a lot of things like let's yeah I know right. Let's let's stick with. uh With COVID-19 right now and immunity, I mean, that is the, the hot topic there on so many people's minds. So, I mean, how big of a role do you think, and I know that there's so much emerging science about this, so much that we still don't really know yet, but how big of a role, how important is it that we have a healthy gut right now in terms of our ability to maybe not avoid contracting the virus, but certainly if we do get it, our ability to fight it off?
0: Yeah. Make no mistake. The way to avoid contracting the virus is with physical distancing and washing your hands a bazillion times a day. I mean, that is that is the strategy for contracting the virus. And I don't think you need me to cover that. But you're right. We want an optimized immune system. And I think that one of the things that I see that is being sort of misunderstood is people saying, I want more immune system. I want a more powerful immune system. But, you know, a more powerful immune system can actually turn into your enemy. How's that? So most people don't realize that the the virus enters into your body, the immune system steps up to fight the virus. But if the immune system hyperreacts, okay, it's basically like it comes out, it's like Tony Montana saying, say hello to my little friend, and it's just (laughs) unloading all the guns at once, right? And it starts unloading all the guns at once, and what you get is you get overactivation of the immune system. Perhaps you've heard of this expression, the cytokine storm. It sounds really cool. It's not because people who get a cytokine storm, their immune system is exploding and it has negative consequences. And if you go to the lungs, what ends up happening is the lungs start to fill up with fluid, both lungs. And we call this acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS. ARDS is one of the most dangerous things that can happen to a human being. The only way to sustain life in that case is to have a person on a respirator. And it can take, it could take a minimum of seven and potentially up to 14 days to get this to turn the corner. But it's not the virus itself that's causing the ARDS. That's not what it is. It's the virus setting off the immune system, and then the immune system burning out of control to the point that it actually goes so far as to actually cause this reaction in the lungs, the ARDS. So you don't want an excessive immune system. What you want is you want precision you want optimized, you want targeted, and that, by the way, is exactly what you get when you optimize the gut. Our studies show us, our studies show us that when they have looked at respiratory viruses, and there are several studies of this variety, by the way, Chuck, we, we don't have this with COVID-19 yet. I wish that we did, we, we haven't gotten to that point where we can do these kinds of studies. But we have multiple respiratory viruses where they look at the value of a high fiber diet. And I'm gonna say, look, These are animal model studies. I'm not saying that I want more animal model studies. It's not saying that I support animal model studies. I'm just telling you what the studies show. In these studies, the animals that receive a high-fiber diet compared to a low-fiber diet and are infected with these respiratory viruses, they live longer, they have less symptoms, and when they measure the effect on the lungs, it has less of an effect on the lungs. And the scientists were quite surprised, Chuck, when they saw this. Cause the scientists actually predicted that the high fiber diet would be a problem because it's anti-inflammatory, right? So they thought it would reduce the immune system. What they found was that in fact, what the high fiber diet was doing is making the immune system more precise. Here's what happened. Fiber feeds the microbiome. The microbiome actually transforms that fiber into short chain fatty acids, short chain fatty acids. It's chapter three of my book. I'm obsessed with these things in this particular case. I mean, they have healing effects throughout the entire body. I could talk for a whole hour about them, but in this particular case, the short chain fatty acids go to the lungs. They recruit the CD eight cells, which are the exact cells that you want to fight the virus. You're getting the right soldiers on the battlefield, Mm -hmm. but the rest of the immune system kept them in the barracks, kept them in the barracks, kept them cool. All right, chill out, guys. We don't need you going crazy here. This is not your fight. All right. And so is the type of precision, the type of targeting, the type of optimization that I'm talking about, I'm not saying that every single person who eats a high fiber diet is going to have a perfect immune system and not have to worry about getting this virus. I'm not saying that we lift our restrictions based upon these studies. I'm telling you what I'm saying is gut health with a high fiber diet can translate into a precise targeted optimized immune system that can make a difference in the fight against this virus
1: no no doubt this is the reason why the book is called fiber fuel that's out may 12th get your pre-orders in now um i'm curious talking specifically about the gut switching gears just slightly i understand now going back to COVID 19 we're starting to see you know some issues with COVID 19 and the gi tract what's the connection there
0: I want people to know this is like a this is like a public service announcement here this darn virus can wear many masks and it can hide and fly below the radar and one of the ways that it can present is like a stomach bug you think you got a stomach bug you get a loss of appetite nausea and vomiting or diarrhea in some cases abdominal pain and these particular these particular patients they think, you know, you think you have a stomach bug and it turns out you actually have COVID-19 and it's really important you develop these symptoms to be conscious of the possibility that it, maybe it's not, a, maybe it's not a stomach bug. Maybe it is COVID-19 because if you're conscious of that possibility, you're going to take the right steps. You're going to continue to distance yourself from other people and you're going to make sure that you don't get anyone else infected. The reason why it's affecting the gut, Chuck, is kind of interesting you've probably talked about this on the exam room podcast before the the virus has this unique protein called a spike protein the spike protein allows the virus to attach to a human receptor called an ace two receptor the main location of these ace two receptors is in the lungs that's why it's attacking our lungs but the number two location is our gut And this is the reason why a person can manifest with gut symptoms and actually have active COVID-19. And in the studies, they will detect it in the stool. So when they check that person's poop, they actually find that the virus is present in that poop. And so this is why we have to be very careful.
1: Ah, I didn't know. I mean, I know I've heard of uh, blood tests and nasal swabs. I've not heard of the fecal test for COVID-19.
0: The fecal test is not being rolled out by our government. It is not (laughs) something that is designed for clinical use. But in laboratory studies, the fecal test is showing that that the presence of the virus is there. And what's interesting in some cases, what they saw is that there are cases where the virus is still present in the stool, but not present in the respiratory system, like in the nose. And so what that means is that you have actually cleared the virus up top in the respiratory system. But you continue to shed the virus through your stool, which basically means people, please wash your hands after you poop.
1: Right. That's that's an important tip there.
0: <laughs> Back to the basics, Chuck. I, I mean, really. These are the basics.
1: Yeah. And I can't see that test being rolled out in any sort of drive-through site either, uh, for the record. I think that that should really just be limited to those nasal swabs, personally. Yeah. Um, okay. So with that in mind, uh, let's stick on that appetizing track and uh, talk about brass tacks here. I think that a lot of people are like, okay, well, I want to make my gut healthy Really, what foods should I be eating? There are so many Nutrition Nuts that watch and listen to the show. So what are the ones that we should really be focusing on right now?
0: All right. So I'm going to keep it super simple for you, Chuck, and, and say this. In my book, there's a chapter where I lay out exactly what are my foundational foods. I would throw legumes and whole grains in there as like the foundation of a healthy gut microbiome. Okay. But in fact, there's one thing that I think trumps all of this. There's this one thing that trumps all of this, which is that when they actually studied what is the greatest predictor of a healthy gut microbiome, this was done in the American Gut Project, which by the way, was an international study. It was not just the United States, but it is is the largest study to correlate the health of our microbiome with diet and lifestyle. This is the most valid source to answer this question. And the researchers, I don't think that they have any preference on diet. They just punched it into the equation and they said, what comes out? What came out was a clear-cut number one predictor of a healthy gut microbiome. And that was the diversity of plants in your diet. The diversity of plants in your diet. And so if you read my book, you're going to find that this is my golden rule. I'm I'm sort of tired of the fad diets, not talking about veganism, not talking about plant-based diet, talking about you know, Atkins and Paleo and Whole30 and go down the line. And I'm tired of these laundry lists that say you can't eat this. And they're giving us a, a a complex when it comes to our food. I mean, we're all developing a little bit of an eating disorder with these lists or these different ingredients that are being vilified and we're supposed to be scared of. It comes back to one rule. You want a healthy gut, eat a wide, broad variety of plants. And the reason why this works, Chuck, is the connection between fiber and our gut. It is a special connection between fiber and our microbiome. This is the food that they eat. This is the fuel for a healthy gut microbiome. And each plant has specific bacteria in your gut that will thrive when you feed them that plant. So if you feed them the black beans, there are specific microbes that will be thriving and celebrating and jumping with joy and wanting to reward you And they will. They will reward you with short-chain fatty acids. But if you withdraw the black beans, you jump on a paleo diet and you say, no beans, no grains. You withdraw those black beans, those same microbes, those healthy anti-inflammatory microbes are going to die. All right. Now, I'm not trying to guilt trip anyone here. I'm just trying to tell you that the science is completely legit diversity of plants. So, yes, I like beans. I like grains, I like greens, I like fruit. I like fermented foods, I like seaweed, all right? There's a whole lot of different foods that I like. The key from my perspective, though, is diversity. Don't always do the same stuff, look for opportunities, broaden out, broaden out. And it's not just trying new stuff, by the way, Chuck. It can be super simple. In our family, we eat like everyone else, pasta, tomato sauce, okay? So I do an organic whole wheat pasta, with some tomato sauce, that's two ingredients. That's two plants. That's not much plant-based diversity. But if I throw mushrooms, onions, garlic, maybe some zucchini, throw that in the sauce, and then smash some basil, some oregano, maybe some parsley, just throw that right there on top. And now all of a sudden you went from two to like seven or eight. It tastes even better. It's effortless, and your gut loves you for it.
1: You know, people sleep on this one. You want to talk about good things to throw in a pasta sauce. I'm telling you, just chop up some fresh kale and put that in there. It it's mm. it takes, if you don't overcook it, it's a little bit chewy. It's kind of nice, especially if you're just tiptoeing into the idea of of a plant-based diet and you're used to having kind of like a, a chewy meat, as disgusting as that sounds in the pasta sauce there. I'm telling you, like chopped kale can actually replicate that mouthfeel. That term kind of creeps me out, but it's true. can replicate <clears throat> that mouthfeel kind of... Uh, Well, and I think that it would also serve to uh, help your gut out way more so than any sort of red meat or pork or anything along those lines.
0: Uh, The pork and the red meat, I mean, we detail this. This is is made very clear in the book. There are certain things that elevate the gut, that make it stronger, that make it healthier. And fiber, fiber is the flagship, all right? And fiber you only find in one place. You find it in plants. They got a monopoly. This is why diversity of plants is the number one thing. But Chuck, the flip side is saturated fat. Mm. Saturated fat actually induces dysbiosis in the gut. Saturated fat actually causes damage to the gut. People talk about leaky gut. All right, leaky gut, the word that I would use is dysbiosis. But what you're talking about is really causing harm to to these gut microbes. And we have multiple studies that say that saturated fat does that. And let me come forward and be clean and be honest. You know, complete transparency. Meat absolutely i mean meat contains saturated fat cheese contains saturated fat but you know what else does coconut oil and i don't so i don't really get the putting the coconut oil on the coffee idea because i don't see what the advantage is i just don't no.
1: It I, i'm i'm gonna be honest with you it just does not sound like it would taste good together anyway i've never personally tried it you know if i'm gonna drink coffee i would like it black i'm more of a tea guy anyway but i don't want the sheen of oil on top of anything that i'm drinking I'm just saying.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. But, you know, I think what it is is people have been lured into these fads and traps, you know, and they're being sold stuff that 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 sort of gets out there and enters into this echo chamber of like YouTube and Instagram where every single person is sharing this information, but it's not coming from a reputable source. I mean, how did bone broth get so darn big when there's not literally a single study, not even a stinky one, not even like a... like Give me like three people taking bone broth and afterwards saying, hey, I feel better in my gut. Like, at least give me that. You, gotta, <laughs> you don't even have that.
1: I Yeah, man, I, I don't know. It, it reminds me of a, a friend of mine uh, who one day I went over to his house and he's like so proud. He's a little bit overweight and he, he knows my backstory and he's putting a stick of butter, honest to God, Dr. B, he's putting a stick of butter in his cup of coffee and he's like, hey, Chuck, I'm going to catch up to you with this weight loss thing and I'm just kind of looking at him. I'm like, what are you doing man like explain to me how this works in like any sort of like sense here and he's like well it's gonna keep me full bro it's like do you know what you're putting in your coffee right now even if it does keep you full like just the amount of fat and calories that you're ingesting now is off the charts like come on man common sense it's got to kick in So for a guy like that, let me ask you this, a guy like that who's then switching over, like making changes to his diet again, let's talk about these changes. How rapidly can we see changes in terms of our overall gut health and replacing unhealthy bacteria with healthy bacteria when we make these changes to our diet?
0: So, you know, this is a great question. And I love this because as I was preparing my book, I wanted to answer that exact question. And what I saw was study after study after study showing me that the magic number appears to be about four weeks. All right, so there are multiple examples in my book where I will talk about something changing and something disappearing or emerging, and it always seems to come back to about four weeks is the time period. And this is the reason why, Chuck, that I made my the meal plan. You know, m- my book, it's got the science. It's going to show you the path, but it's not going to leave you hanging. It's actually going to give you the plan. So, I have a four week plan called the Fiber Fueled Four Weeks. It's got over 70 recipes. Every week, you have a shopping list with ingredients, all that kind of stuff. And the reason why I made it four weeks, it would have been so much easier to just do like 10 days and call it a detox, you know? (laughs) And so, four weeks, because that is the period of time that you can really change your gut, that you can make dramatic changes to your gut in about four weeks.
1: Yep. And I would I would think also that if you make a change, uh, we we do a, what we call a 21 day kickstart uh, with the Physicians Committee, you're doing four weeks, but I think that, you know, more than just that 10 days is a fad 10 days is something that anybody can do 10 days, though, in my opinion, I'm not a doctor does not establish lifelong habit changes. And I think that to be successful long term, whether you're just trying to lose weight or achieve optimum health overall, you got to go beyond 10 days. Like you need to establish a new pattern, a new, a new set of habits there. And I think that when you reach three weeks, four weeks, you're going to be much, much better shape to do so and not go back to your old ways.
0: You know, this it's not even you're right. And this is this is also not a four week plan. Um, and then you quit. This is not a whole 30. You know, this is not meant to be some discrete thing. This is, and, and you know, Chuck, you know this because you read the book. Right off the bat, I am talking to the patient or I'm talking to the person reading the book and saying, this is not meant to be a diet. This is a lifestyle that heals. It is a lifestyle trajectory that heals. And when you get your lifestyle in alignment, and that includes diet, that includes the other elements of your lifestyle, like sleep and exercise and these other things, Small changes, when you turn them into a habit, lead to massive results. And health can become effortless. When you take those things and you turn them into habits, it becomes effortless to actually take your health back. And that's why I completely agree with you. Whether it's three weeks, four weeks, whatever it is, the physician's committee and I are saying the same thing. Don't stop there. Don't stop there. We're just getting you started, we're getting the ball in motion. And you keep that ball rolling. All
1: right. Well, let's say somebody wants to clean something up that's not necessarily weight. Let's say that cancer runs in their family. Alzheimer's runs in their family. One of the things that I've discovered, Dr. B, since doing the show is that, man, we have way more control over these things than we ever could possibly realize. And in your book, you write about the strong connection between genes and... And gut health, again, can you talk to us a little bit about how that works? We've heard the analogy so often about genes being a light switch that you can flip on and off. What's, what's your opinion here?
0: Yeah, well, that's, that's completely the truth. So, you know, it's a matter of you're describing epigenetics. All right. Now, in the year, it was right, right around 2000 or 2001, they cracked the human genome for the first time. It was the Human Genome Project. It was international. Bill Clinton called a press conference. It was supposed to be a big deal, right? They thought that they were literally going to cure cancer. That's how big they thought it was. We haven't cured cancer. And the reason why is because our genetic code is just basically a construct of possibilities. But you are not set in stone. I mean, if anything, I find this to be empowering. You are not basically like set up where you have no choice of what direction your life and your health go. And the gut and the microbiome plays such a critical role in determining the manifestation of disease or not. Let me give you a quick example, celiac disease. I'll just walk you through this real quick. Celiac disease is an autoimmune condition. Your immune system reacts to the presence of gluten in the diet and it is genetically motivated. What that means is if you don't have the gene for celiac, you can't get it, but it's a very common gene. About one in three people have this gene for celiac. Now we have seen celiac increase 500% in the last 50 years. That's not a shift in our genetics. All right. One in three people have the gene, but only about one in a hundred actually have the disease. What is it? What is it that explains who actually gets the disease? And there was a doctor at McMaster university up in Ontario. Who studied this her name is Elena Verdu and she found that you need three things to get celiac disease one is you need the gene we already knew that but that's the truth you need the gene number two exposure to gluten well that's all of us I don't know anyone who wasn't exposed to gluten during their lifetime in our country but the third thing the key what ultimately makes the determining decision is damage to the gut we use the word dysbiosis when you damage the gut You activate the gene now you have celiac disease and I'm not aware of the ability to walk that back. But it's interesting Chuck, because you know, I'm a gastroenterologist. That's what I do for a living. I I do that full time. And I see people who will say like, I went to Mexico, I got a stomach bug. I came home. It got a little bit better, but I'm still having diarrhea and then I'll go and I'll do the appropriate testing and discover that they have celiac disease. And really the sequence of events for them is that they got the stomach bug. They really did get a stomach bug. Mm -hmm. And the stomach bug damaged their microbiome. And because they had a damaged microbiome, they activated the gene that gave them celiac disease. And that's just one example of how powerful the gut microbiome is in terms of the expression of our genetics.
1: I would imagine you get quite a few, you know, unique stories from patients seeing them, um, from, from time to time. One of the things that, uh, somebody I'm close to raised with me recently are like, look, you know, I don't eat nearly as healthy of a diet as you do. I eat a lot of, you know, processed foods and things like that, but I try to eat primarily plant based. But every now and again, when I eat something like an apple, like a whole food, like I just get so bloated. What do you think would be going on with a patient like that?
0: Well, the first thing that I want to say is that people have been told that that's inflammation and that you should eliminate that food from your diet because you obviously can't tolerate it, and that's simply not true. That's sloppy digestion. That's what that is. It's sloppy digestion, and the reason why – let me nerd out for a minute, Chuck. Nerd out, man. Do it. Do it. Thank you. So I can't help it. I'm a a science nerd. So (laughs) there are these enzymes. These are digestive enzymes, okay? that we need to break down the fibrous material in our plants. And they're called glycoside hydrolases. Now, the human body has everything that it needs to break down protein, has everything that it needs to break down fat, and it can break down very simple sugars. But the human body does not have the enzymes necessary to break down fiber. And the reason why is because we have actually outsourced this to our microbiome. We, big, strong humans, you know, we have 17 glycoside hydrolases, 17 of them. A single cellular microbe that you cannot even see may have hundreds of them. Your gut microbiome, it's been estimated, has 60,000 of these glycoside hydrolases. We need them and we need that variety because there are literally 300,000 edible plants on this planet. So while our food system may only be feeding us 50 of them, there's 300,000. And as we evolved as humans over 3 million years and we radiated out across this planet, we needed a, the ability to adapt to our environment. And our gut microbiome is so much better at adapting and evolving than, than we are. So we outsourced the processing of plants to our gut microbiome. The problem, Chuck, is that the person who feels that gas and bloating when they eat an apple, it may be a sensitivity to a part of the apple. Okay, like it may be fructose sensitivity. Mm -hmm. But it may also be that they have damage to their gut. And if you have damage to your gut and you hypothetically take that 60,000 in terms of those enzymes... And you drop it down to 52,000. I'm just making up numbers, but I'm just going to give you an example. And you drop down to 52,000. What if in that loss, you're missing out on some of the enzymes that you needed to really properly break down that apple? And that's what that person experiences. The same is true for the person who has a damaged gut and they eat beans or they eat whole grains. And they go, oh my gosh, I can't tolerate these. And if they go to a functional medicine practitioner, they're going to be told to get rid of them. And it's a mistake because actually, as I detail in the book, when you, when you get rid of those foods, you actually make your gut weaker. So instead, what we need to do is we need to introduce and we need to increase slowly over time. The gut is like a muscle. It's time to think about the gut. Like it's a muscle. If you don't use it, you lose it. If you take categories of food out, you're not going to be better at processing them. You're going to be worse. But if you introduce it at the right amount, like exercise, if you introduce it at the right amount and you slowly increase with time, you will get stronger. You will get those enzymes back. When the gut is damaged, it's not irreversibly damaged. It can be fixed. My book is the playbook. I mean, fiber field is the playbook to show you how to get it back. But the point is that we need our gut microbiome to properly digest our plants. And that's why it's important that you continue to feed the gut with these diverse plants so that you have everything that you need from a digestive enzyme perspective. Uh,
1: Dr. B, I feel like we could just go for hours on this. I mean, we're just scratching the surface here. I mean, it's an emerging science with so much stuff still to talk about that we're just going to have to table. But I want to leave the last word to you, my friend. I mean, just for somebody who is just really not familiar at all with with gut health and and plant-based diets. I mean, what is your final message to them today?
0: My final message to everyone listening today is this. It's incredibly simple. Gut health is plant-based. Gut health is plant-based. This is not like you have alternative choices. It's the fiber that fuels your gut, that makes it stronger and gives you that optimal gut health which then radiates your health throughout the entire body, affecting your metabolism, affecting your immune system, your hormone levels, your mood, your cognition, your, your, the expression of your genes. It's so simple. I lay it out in the book. But if there's only one takeaway message for today, increase the diversity of plants in your diet. Do it with every meal. All
1: right, man. And my last question to you is what's for dinner?
0: Oh, gosh. Um, You know what? I think my wife might be making a delicious curry. Um, Many times we'll have it like we're really into um, experimenting with different whole grains. And so I've been kind of into farro recently. I love like the the chewiness of it. Yeah, man. So a nice curry um, over some farro, smash some uh, cilantro on top, and I am a very happy camper. All right. Giddy
1: up. All right. So I expect a full report on that when we bring you back on the show next time because I feel like there's just so much left unanswered. Maybe you know we can even do like a a listener Q&A next time, field some questions.
0: I would love that. Awesome. I would love that.
1: All right, Dr. Will Bolsowitz, the book is Fiber Fueled, the plant-based gut health program for losing weight, restoring health, and optimizing your microbiome out May 12th.
0: Oh, my gosh, man. I love it. That, is, <laughs> that just made my day. That was the highlight of April so far. Thank you.
1: Oh, no, man. I appreciate that very much. You are you are an awesome guest, man. Can't wait to have you back, Dr. B. All
0: right, Chuck. Take care, brother.
1: Again, if you'd like to pre-order a copy of Dr. Bolsowitz's book, Fiber Fueled, a link to do so is in the episode notes. What a fun guy. First time on the show. I think that we will be bringing him back for the exam room live. Lots of energy on him, too, probably because he's got a healthy gut. (laughs) Now then, let's change gears. America is, in fact, in the midst of a meat shortage processing plants are shutting down left and right because of outbreaks of the coronavirus among employees. As much as 20% of the pork supply has been cut off because of this, and it's also happening with beef and chicken. So that begs the question, how is the supply of fruits and vegetables? Are farmers facing the same issues with their crops? Will the produce section at your store look a little barren the next time you head there? And my next guest, he will have the answer. Dale Moore is with the American Farm Bureau Federation, and he has his pulse on what's happening out in the fields. So let's check in with him to see how growing is going during the pandemic. continuing here on the exam room podcast brought to you by the physicians committee with the weight loss champion chuck carroll you know a lot of listeners recently have expressed concern that there could be a shortage of fruits and vegetables we've heard so much about meat shortages as much as 20 percent of the nation's pork supply right now has been slashed because of the pandemic but What about fruits and vegetables, that fresh produce? To help guide us through that and get some answers, we welcome to the show Dale Moore. He is the Executive Vice President of the American Farm Bureau Federation. Dale, welcome to the exam room.
2: Chuck, thank you so much for inviting me in. Thank you for giving me a chance to at least virtually uh, get out of the house for just a teeny tiny bit here.
1: (laughs) It's my pleasure. I think that we all should try to get out of the house virtually or otherwise right now. I know we're all going kind of stir crazy at the moment.
2: We are, and I think that's one of the things, too, that in this, whatever this new thing is, you know, folks, like, what, what is the new normal? I, I hesitate to say anything about this is normal, uh, but this sort of new structure that we're all learning to deal with, and you touched on it very clearly when we're looking at the different ways that our farmers and ranchers uh, having to deal with, with uh, the markets, and I think particularly of our fruit and vegetable producers, one of the first things that came to our attention I uh, was a fruit and vegetable producer talking about how his markets, the restaurants, the hotels, uh, the convention centers, et cetera, that was gone. That was shut down. So he had all this produce, did not have a place for it to go, but because of the nature of these crops, he has to harvest. He has to keep that in order to keep his plants alive throughout the, the, the season. So this notion in, in our connecting with feeding America to come up with at least a thought and put it on the table for Secretary of Agriculture to say, how do we make this connection work so that those that have food and those that are needing food, and I know you've seen the lines uh, you know, on the news reports and stuff, how do we connect those folks together so that that food is not being plowed under, so that milk is not going down the drain, so that produce is making it to a table where it's needed.
1: And I think that that's a really good point. I think that as consumers, typically we just think of farmers just shipping fruits, vegetables to grocery stores. We forget about the direct to convention centers, as you said, restaurants, things of that nature. And with all of those shut down right now, I would imagine that there is quite a bit of crop that is going unused.
2: Well, it's, uh, I can't give you specific numbers. We know that it is quite a bit, for example, you know, some of these crops, uh, tomatoes so half of the tomatoes grown are going to restaurants uh, hotels or uh, hotel restaurants whatever but the, the food service industry that is you know we're keeping the distance from we're shutting down doing that so there's that many tomatoes that are going on the ground or they're getting plowed under and you take that uh, even brussels sprouts which i know some folks kind of you know wrinkle their forehead over brussels sprouts but those two uh, there's you know i watch enough of the food channel to know there's a way to fix those brussels sprouts They're delicious <laughs> And in this day, no food, any food that we can prevent from going to waste, uh, particularly with so many folks out of out of work. I know Feeding America made the comment the other day that they're, they're predicting some like 40 million people uh, are now effectively in the food assistance lines. Uh, and that's something that that are you know, folks out of work uh, and, and typically, you know, probably more concentrated in the urban suburban areas where a lot of those restaurants and those farmers who deliver direct uh, and and part of what Feeding America had briefed us on and part of what our farmers and connecting with other links in the chain, finding ways that they might be able to help. I know USDA is working on this as well, but it's like, you're the restaurant. Typically I would bring in, you know, a hundred pound flat of, of, um, you know, asparagus or, you know, a, a bin of lettuce or something, that's not something that makes it very easy to hand off to, to a, you know, family that's needing to feed themselves. And I need to share that with a number of different families. So part of it's the packaging. Uh, part of it's the cold storage. You know, a lot of these perishable commodities, you can't just leave sitting out on the shelf. There's got to be a, a continual flow to the process. And so, you know, if we can, you know, connect folks who have idle shipping and idle cold storage and all those different links in the chain, uh, hopefully we we don't see any more pictures or minimize the number of pictures of, you know, squash, tomatoes, cucumbers, Brussels sprouts, fruits, vegetables going into the ground and being plowed under simply because we cannot get them to market.
1: So, and I think that that kind of – Answers this question. I just want to ask you flat out: in your estimation, based off of what it is that we're talking about, it does not sound like there will be a shortage of fruits, vegetables, produce anytime soon. It sounds to me like actually, right now, there's more than enough.
2: Well, and it's something, and you may have seen this, uh, Chuck. When we first, when COVID 19 first kind of reared itself up, and we started, you know, hearing concerns, and and we started seeing the cities and urban areas and states shutting down, encouraging social distancing, one of the things that came back to us was, you know, farmers and ranchers, you know, the hashtag still farming or pound still farming. Uh, I'm not much of a tweeter, but that's, you know. It's a hashtag. It's a hashtag. hashtag. Uh, and, And what we were hearing from our members is like, you know, I know things are tough. I know we need to social distance, but, you know, guess what? I'm on the farm. I am social distancing. But at the same time, you know, I'm still farming. My family's still farming. It's why you know, out of the box, uh, one of the first things we focused on the supply chain, making sure that farmers could get stuff to market and could get the inputs they needed, you know, the seeds or the plants or whatever they need for their their produce to put that in the ground, and at the same time, making sure they had the workers they need because a lot of these fruits and vegetables is very familiar. A lot of them require a lot of uh, hand labor. Uh, they're not things that you know big mechan like with The grains, you know, there's a lot of mechanical harvesting and and stuff that can take care of that. But when it comes to fruits and vegetables, the specialty crops, you need a lot of of hand labor to make that
1: work. And can you talk about any of the safety measures that you've heard of from farmers who are, you know, trying to keep employees healthy and and as well as, you know, make sure that we don't see anything out in the field like we're seeing with the processing plants right now?
2: Well, and that's one of the things uh, it's, you know, each and this is one of the things we emphasize, each one of those farms that's out there, the farmers and their families themselves, the men and women I work for, they're out there working too. So they want to be safe. They want to keep their families safe. They want to keep their workers safe. Uh, following the uh, you know, Center for Disease Control guidelines, uh, that's one thing that you know, we've had going out and making sure folks are aware. Our state farm bureaus have been sharing that information. I should say state farm bureaus and Puerto Rico's. Puerto Rico is one of our state-level affiliates. But we've also been sharing things at uh, Cornell University. It's got a great website and a bunch of links on kind of taking the, some of the CDC information and sort of translating that, if you will, into, into farm speak. You know, what does this mean on the farm? In some cases, we know we've had states where particularly they have a number of uh, guest workers or foreign workers translating some of that information and, and how to keep folks informed as to how to keep safe Not only at the farm, but also when they're off the farm, Uh, making sure that, you know, they're practicing social distancing and things to the extent that is possible. And and this applies to the farmers and ranchers as well. So it's something that, you know, as as we're a family, we're used to, you know, communing and being together. And so there's a little bit of this uh, kind of weird feeling of holding our elbows out. It's like, you know, let's let's do a high five from six feet away from each other. And it just feels a little odd right now. The farmers and ranchers too, when when you look at what they do on their farms day in and day out, forget COVID-19, you know, ensuring that what they're producing is safe for the food supply, uh, brings in a lot of uh, safety factors, a lot of mitigations that they do, uh, tasks, techniques that they have on the farm to ensure that what they're producing is is as clean and wholesome and and fresh as is possible. All of those help contribute to minimizing the impacts of this, this awful virus from being able to get a foothold.
1: I want to go back to something that we were talking about earlier, and that is the businesses, the convention centers, things of the, the restaurants being shut down and now the farmers not having anywhere to send their, their crop. Now, I think that the average person listening to this right now might be saying, well, can't they just send it to a grocery store or something like that? Is it as easy as flipping a switch and saying, well, if I can't send it here, I'm going to send it there. What would be the disconnect?
2: Well, part of it is, is what you just said, that it, the kind of the flip of that, having the connections necessary to go to that grocery store. Uh, but if the grocery store is already full, they're at capacity and what they can take and move out, uh, Part of it is that produce too. It's got to go through a, you know, typically a packing shed, which includes some sanitary type, uh, phytosanitary type actions, uh, you know, stations, cleanliness, all that, and the packaging. Because uh, typically the folks that deliver to the restaurants, if they harvest and bring all that stuff up uh, to a, a, a grocery store, again, the grocery store does not have the wherewithal to break those packages down, to break those those uh, crops, those you know, vegetables, those fruits down into the little pint-sized containers or quart-sized containers, like with, uh, you know, berries and so forth. So that's part of it. Now, I will say, too, what we've heard, Louisiana, for example, our, our Louisiana Farm Bureau members made the comment that they are hearing from some of the restaurants in the area uh, that are looking for ways to keep – it's not really keep business rolling, but to keep their employees – engaged as they're effectively uh, working with the right officials, but taking delivery of some of the, the fruits and vegetables that they would normally order or obtain for the restaurant. And then putting the employees to work, breaking it down, Maybe as simple as putting it into plastic bags and, you know, putting around that so that it can be picked up and then further taken to either a food bank or picked up at, you know, curbside at the restaurant itself. There's another one of those efforts that, that, we're hoping, uh, you know, is sort of the ingenuity of folks finding ways to help each other during this crisis, uh, while also kind of protecting the flow of the food chain.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. I know of an, a number of restaurants that are actually kind of becoming mini marts, as as it were, that, are, you know, are offering the ingredients that they ordinarily would be using to prepare the full meal, but now they're just selling it individually because, you know, people are just, they don't want to go to the grocery store right now, so they're afraid. So at least that way you can stock up on fresh produce and, and get, you know, your greens and things of that nature. You're seeing more and more of that, right? But we're hearing more,
2: I'd say seeing, uh, you know, my mother was an English teacher. Forgive me, Chuck. Hearing more about that and kind of in that context of of how now I've got a great idea and, and it's almost like, uh, you know, I kind of remember this. I remember Grandma talking about standing at the stove and actually fixing food rather than ordering it online. I mean, it, it's kind of interesting uh, to see it and had... One individual tell me how reader or not viewership, I start of say readership, viewership of things like the food channel. You know, I hope they show that recipe on how to, you know, saute those vegetables just right or put them in through, you know, make a what is it, uh thing they're doing with some of the vegetables, ricing. Yeah, uh, you know, and I'm trying to avoid the starches, but I'm using vegetables to kind of as a substitute for that. You know, I've had different folks tell me they're they're seeing that. And they're picking that up, you know, from some of the restaurants, you know, not only in the DC area, but different parts of the country. And I think that's one of the things that we are, uh, and, and I'm very careful. It's not something we're taking credit for having started, you know, these actions, but rather we appreciate by putting out and folks like yourself, taking time to, to talk with us about it, just sort of spreads the word and gets more folks. Cause this is one of those issues where everybody says, you know what? I can do that. I've, I'm still getting calls, you know, from a couple of weeks ago when we sent first sent the letter to uh, Secretary Purdue about the voucher idea, working with uh, Feeding America, saying, hey, you know, we're a shipping company or we're a cold storage company or we're this company, and we would love to connect with the right folks so that we can help. And we may be small in, in a region or we may be national. doesn't matter. Anybody that wants to help feed all those people, you know, seeing the stories of folks who waited in line for hours to get food only to get to the front of the line and find out, you know, we're done, we're empty. Uh, And that's something we know we've got food. You said this, uh, you know, again at the outset, our farmers are producing food. We've got the food. The big question, the big issue, the big challenge is how do we connect what we can produce with the folks who can help us get it, you know, to, into the hands of, or into the boxes, or onto the tables, those folks who need it most during this crisis.
1: Well, if somebody's hearing this and they're like, Well, hey, maybe, you know, I have a restaurant that I could use a little help with, or maybe they run a food bank, how can they get connected with the farmers who are looking to bridge that gap?
2: Well, what I would encourage, uh, the best thing I can tell you is if you let me know, or if through their food bank, reaching out uh, to USDA, but I'll, I'll just focus on me d a l e m at f b dot org uh, what I can tell you is I am not the expert. I'm kind of the chief full of it guy, um, but I know who I need to get it to that has that expertise, and I'd be happy to to be the relay uh, on this to make sure that the folks who have a willingness to help get connected with somebody who can say, Hey, you know here's what we need or how can we perhaps uh, partner up on this
1: right. sounds like a plan and Dale, I can't let you go obviously. Everybody listening to this, they love some plant-based diets. Well, can you talk a little bit generally speaking about what you're seeing as far as plant-based food industry trends? We hear so much about it's just booming in popularity. Are you noticing the same thing?
2: We, we definitely notice it. This, you know, we're a general farm organization. So our membership, you know, covers the range of every commodity that's grown in the United States. Uh, in every, you know, state, and it, and I'm always learning something. I grew up in Kansas, uh, and, you know, visiting with our members in, in Puerto Rico, visiting with our members in Hawaii, you know, doesn't take long to figure out that there's a whole different, you know, growing season and process and crops that can be raised uh, a little different than western Kansas where, you know, 15 inches of rain a year is, is a wet year. So we're looking at, at some of these trends uh, not only in terms of how the crops uh, are race, but in their process, what are the different products they can go in? What are the, the combinations that are, you know, uh, was it and how do you add in, you know, protein? I think particularly for those who prefer a, a vegetarian or a vegan type diet, you know, there's sometimes there's some challenges because of, you know, what is in that mix. And I had a, a great opportunity. I worked at USDA several years ago. And one of the things that, that I remember being fascinated at is when I finally approved the, the organic rule. And watching how the organic industry just exploded when we finally had federal standards and kind of hard and fast rules, and I think that that's part of where you know we I think we're getting to with some of some of these efforts and new products, the labeling, what you call it, and how you get to the midpoint because everything that goes into those plant based products uh, is something that I am sure one of uh, our members, one of my bosses. Uh, has a hand in in putting in the ground and and getting that seed to sprout uh, and hoping that Mother Nature cooperates. Uh, She's sometimes a cranky business partner, but (laughs) getting through the (laughs) year. To
1: to put it mildly, my friend, Dale Moore, Executive Vice President of the American Farm Bureau Federation. Dale, thank you so very much for your time, my friend. You stay safe.
2: You too, Chuck. And thank you so much for reaching out to us. And I look forward to uh, giving you an update here in a few weeks to talk about how successful we've been.
1: If you're interested in trying to get in touch with Dale and making a connection with the farmers who have the crops that they just don't want to go to waste, we've posted Dale's email address in the episode notes. So go ahead and reach out and see if you can make a connection and help out both the farmers and those in need. It was also great to get the perspective from Dale because Dale isn't necessarily 100% plant based. He's not. But sometimes, Let's be honest here. Sometimes we can get in this little bubble, our own little vegan world. But it's good to get the perspective of someone who lives outside that bubble because we have to have conversations, you know, and then once we do, maybe together we can help make the world a healthier place. Coming up later this week, I will be joined by Dietitian Extraordinaire Lee Crosby. You know her as the Fiber Queen. Talk about making the world a healthier place. We just talked today all about fruits and vegetables. So here's a question for you Which ones last the longest? Which ones take their sweet time spoiling? Well, Lee has done a ton of research on this and has come up with a list of the top 10 fruits and veggies for longevity. Matter of fact, it's a top 10 for both, both fruits and vegetables. So you're going to get 20, 20 wonderful ideas out of Lee. (laughs) So as you try to minimize your trips to the grocery store during this pandemic, and who isn't really trying to limit those trips? We're going to point you in the right direction of the fruits and vegetables that will keep the longest in your house. Plus, also on that very show, Dr. Neil Barnard will be back to answer your questions. We're going to be doing another full question and answer session when we open up the doctor's mailbag, a half hour devoted exclusively to getting you answers. So if you would like to submit your question, go right ahead follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Chuck ChuckCarrollWLC. You can send it to me there or hit up the Physicians Committee at PCRM on Twitter and at Physicians Committee on the gram. Just make sure that you use the hashtag exam room podcast. You can also send us a message on Facebook. Find us there. But I'll tell you what, we can use your help before the next show. We need your help to get this information in front of the people who need it the most. Because as we've talked about, at the heart of the show is our drive to make the world a healthier place. It's more than making conversations with people who don't eat plant-based meals. It's more than just figuring out what the longest lasting fruits and vegetables are. It's about getting this information into the hands, into the ears of those who need it the most. And one of the best ways that you can help us achieve that is simply by subscribing to the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcast or Spotify or Stitcher, really wherever shows are available. And also when you do, please leave a five-star rating because not only when you subscribe and get those new episodes automatically, you'll be helping us climb in the rankings. And the higher we climb in the rankings, the easier it becomes for people to find us. So please help us and do your part. And I greatly appreciate your support. My thanks again to Dr. Will Bolsowitz and Dale Moore for joining us today. And for everyone here, at the Physicians Committee. I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe and keep it plant-based.